0: All right. Well, as Will said, we are continuing with our study of the book of 1 Samuel today, and we've been in it all year. And last week, when we got together, we looked at chapters 27 and chapter 28, and I know that a bunch of you are out of town. So I want to rehearse a little bit what we saw. In chapter 27, we saw this story about David who, up until chapter 27 has spent the better part of the last decade running around in the wilderness places of Israel, hiding and fleeing from King Saul, who has been seeking to hunt him down with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel and to wipe David out. And not just David, but also the 600 or so guys who, for the better part of that decade, have also been running around in the wilderness places, fleeing from Saul with David. 600 guys who have chosen David as their king and rejected Saul And 600 guys who also, very importantly, were kind of like David. And what I mean by that is that they were young, they were healthy, they were strong, they were mobile, they were agile, they were good hunters and gatherers. They were a group of 600 guys who, together with David, were able somehow miraculously to eke out an existence in the wilderness places of Israel where there's very little food and very little water. And whenever they got word of the fact that King Saul was coming a hunting they were able, because they were mobile and agile, to stay about one or two steps ahead of him. Okay, we got to 27 last week, and we realized that's changed. Because now for the first time, we were told in chapter 27 that it's not just David and those 600 guys anymore. Now it's David, those 600 guys, oh, and David's whole family and all of their families. So likely it's about 3,000 people. And within that group of 3,000 people, there are folks who are not mobile and agile. There are pregnant women, There are nursing infants, there are children of all ages, there's the sick, there's the elderly, there's the infirm, you get the idea? That creates a very big dilemma for David, and the dilemma that it creates is all of a sudden he's got a group of people who can't survive in the wilderness anymore, and they're going to need to come out of their hiding place. Somewhere there, there's more food, somewhere where there's more water, and somewhere where they're going to be sitting ducks when King Saul, not if, but when King Saul comes hunting for them yet again. And unlike when they were just 600, you know, mobile, agile guys, they're not going to be able to pull up their tent pegs and keep ahead of King Saul and his special forces. So what David realizes is, practically speaking, the wicked King Saul has driven him and his family and his people out of the land of Israel. David is the Christ figure, guys. Every time you come to one of these stories, you've got to be thinking, so where is Jesus? Jesus. Because he's the real king and he tells us that every story in the Bible is ultimately about him. See, just like Jesus and his family upon his birth had to flee from the land of Israel, they were driven from it by the mad King Herod who was seeking to kill him and did not return until they received word of Herod's death. Well, so it will be with David. David takes his people, he leaves the land of Israel, and he goes into the land of the Philistines. So now he knows that Saul will not pursue him. He's safe from Saul in the land of the Philistines. But the question then becomes, is he safe from the Philistines in the land of the Philistines? Because here's what we know. We know that the Philistines are the inveterate enemies of the Israelites, and David and all 3,000 or so of his people are all Israelites. So that's a mark against them. And then in addition to that, David is the single most famous warrior in all of Israel, bar none. David is the guy who, as a boy, killed the single most famous Philistine warrior, the great giant Goliath, with a stone and a sling by the power of the Lord. And he did it in front of all of the Philistine armies. You remember that story? They remember this guy, And not only that, but as we'll see in chapter 29 today, they know about the songs that are sung of David. And what are the songs that are sung of David? The songs are, okay, Saul has slain his thousands, but but get this, David, his tens of thousands, meaning tens of thousands of Philistine warriors. So David moves from one territory where he's being hunted into another territory where he's going to be hunted. And he has to somehow then win his safety and that of all of his people from the enemy, which is the Philistines. And how does he do that? To put it plainly, he did that with a lie. Flat out, bold-faced lie. He goes to the king of Gath. There are five Philistine cities, five Philistine kings. He goes to the king of Gath, the hometown of Goliath of Gath, the place where he is most famously known as a warrior. Everyone remembers Goliath. Everybody remembers David. And he goes to the king of Gath very strategically, and he says, listen, here's the deal. Saul is your enemy. That's an established fact, but Saul is also my enemy. Now, wait a minute. Let's just stop there. Is that true that Saul was David's enemy? No. David is Saul's enemy, but that's Saul's choice. And he's done that to his own peril, frankly. David has proven again and again and again and again and again that he will not lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. He will not fight against King Saul. As long as King Saul is alive, he is the anointed reigning king of Israel, and David is his most loyal subject. So it's not true but he presents it as if it is. He says, okay, look, Saul was your enemy and Saul is my enemy. You may have heard, I'm sure you have, that he's been hunting me, you know, for like 10 years now. It's really, it's out of control. And, and, And here's the deal. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And here's how I would like for you to be a friend to me. I would like for you to be a friend to me by giving me a place somewhere in your territory, a city, if you will, that I can call my own, where Saul will not come get us because I've got a big horde of people. And we need water, and we need food, and we need a place to live. We can't be running around all the time. That needs to end. And here's how I will be your friend. I offer myself to you and all of my 600 men as your warriors, as your servants. Now, I want you to think, O King, just how much more powerful you will be with the one who is greater than Goliath on your side. Flat-out lie. It's pretty amazing. And God blesses the lie, which is even more incredible, is it not? Because by means of that lie, David preserves not only his life and the lives of all of his people from the man that he's presented himself to as a friend but who is really his enemy, from the one he is truly at war with that he claims to be on the same side of, But he gains territory. He is given a city in the territory of the enemy, which is the Philistines. So that's what we saw last week in chapter 27. But then in chapter 28, what did we see? We saw the five Philistine kings and their five Philistine armies, including the king of Gath and his army, already all gathered together. And then they moved together into the land of Israel, into the Jezreel Valley. And they camped out on one side of the valley... And they came in to do battle against Saul, who was camped on the other side of the valley, and who, when he saw just how many of them they had on their side, freaked out and realized, look, if God is not getting involved on my side in this battle, we are done. And what was the message that he got from the Lord in the most curious of ways? It is, you will die. You and your sons, your whole house will perish tomorrow In battle. So that's 27, then that's 28, and so today we come to 29, and what are we expecting? We're expecting now to read about the battle because we're told, hey, you know what? Tomorrow, Saul, you and your sons are going to die, and the Philistines are already gathered, and the Israelites are already gathered, and they're all sized up, and they're ready to fight. And we get to chapter 29, and it's like, what is this exactly? It's confusing, and here's why because it's out of order, it's not placed chronologically. What we read about in chapter 29 actually took place in between what we studied in 27 and what we studied in 28. And what we learned today in chapter 29 is that before all five of the Philistine kings with all five of their armies, all united and together and of one mind, moved into the land of Israel, they met up in Philistine territory at the city of Aphek, and they reviewed their battle plans, and they reviewed all of their troops, and they got all of their ducks in a row, and then they moved in... To fight Saul. And what we learn as well is that when the king of Gath came riding with his armies, guess who he brought with him to fight against Israel? David, the greater than Goliath, and his 600 guys. And guess what David will do yet again in chapter 29? David is going to lie, guys. And the Lord is going to bless it. And I'm so glad that David lied and the Lord blessed it. And not just for David's sake, I'm glad for our sake. Because throughout the course of this book, this is the fifth lying story, and I've been feeling this mounting tension because thus far all I've been able to say about lying and truthfulness is, okay, listen, it's okay to lie if, and this is a very limited circumstance, by lying you are seeking to subvert the murderous intentions of another person. And typically that takes place in war. That's what we've seen In each instance in this book, here's what I haven't been able to say, but I want to say today. In every other circumstance, here is the word of your king who is Jesus to you. It is thou shalt not lie. We have a king, and he's a king of truth. And he calls us as his people, as his followers, to speak and to live truthfully. So we pick up our study today for Samuel 29, beginning in verse 1, where we read this. It says, Now the Philistines had gathered all of their forces at the Philistine city of Aphek. Before, is the idea here, they then headed into the Israelite territory to do battle against Saul. And the Israelites, meanwhile, Saul and his army, were at this point encamped at the spring that is in Jezreel, awaiting the arrival of their enemies." And then we read that as the lords of the Philistines, these five Philistine kings were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, that is to say as they're reviewing their troops and getting them all ready and in order in their battle plans and whatnot at the city of Aphek before they come into Israel, they look and they see David and his 600 guys amongst their troops and four of them freak out. It says, and as David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the king of Gath, the four other commanders, or kings of the Philistines, said to Achish, what are these Hebrews doing here? I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? And Achish said to the commander of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel? He has been with me, he says, now for days and years. It's been about 16 months, and since he deserted from Saul, did he? No, but that's what Achish thinks, since he's deserted from Saul to me. And now listen to what this Gentile ruler says about David, because we're looking for Jesus in these stories, and there are images everywhere. Listen to the words. He says, I have found no fault in him. I have found no fault in him to this day, but he will now be opposed by everyone else who seeks to send David away. It's fascinating. And he pronounces him blameless four times. He says, I have found no fault in him to this day, but the commanders of the Philistines, who I think are a little bit sharper than Achish, frankly, were angry now. They're in anger they want to send David away. They were angry with Achish, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned to him. For he shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord, meaning to Saul? They see this rightly. Would it not be, they say, with the heads of the men here? And listen, that had to be David's plan. He's committed to not fighting against Saul. And my goodness, is the next king of Israel now going to go to battle against Israel? It's foolishness. David must have been thinking, I'm going to go to battle with these guys, and I'm looking around and going, good grief, there is no way that Israel on her own is going to be able to take these guys. But maybe I can be the instrument of the Lord that delivers my country, my nation, as I rise up in the midst of these guys and take down as many as I possibly can. They are not his friends. And four of these kings, at least, figure that out. And so then they continue, and they say, is this not David, of whom they sing to one another and dances, Saul who struck down his thousands, and David, his tens of thousands, and so then Achish, who's been defeated politically, called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been what? Because this is the second time he pronounces this. You have been honest. Has he? No. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in this campaign for, and here it is again... "'I have found nothing wrong in you "'from the day of your coming to me to this day. "'Nevertheless, I've been outvoted. "'I've been pressured politically. "'I have no choice. "'The other lords of the Philistines do not approve of you, so go back now to Ziklag and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And now listen to what David says, because it's deceptive. David said to King Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against who? Who's he going to fight against? The enemies of my lord, the king. Okay, that's very subtle. But who is his lord, the king? Because it isn't Achish. It's Saul. Saul. He's saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Hang on here because I had a plan and, you know, you're messing it up. I mean, what are you doing? You know, why are you depriving me of the opportunity to fight against the enemies of my Lord and king who is Saul, meaning don't deprive me of the opportunity to fight you guys on behalf of Israel? And Achish answered David and said a fourth time. "'I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God.'" What is an angel of God? He is one who descends from heaven. Is he not? I know that's how blameless you are. "'Nevertheless, the other four commanders of the Philistines have said, "'He shall not go up with us to the battle.'" And now then, he says, "'Rise early in the morning and get out of here. "'With the servants of your Lord, take them,' he says, "'who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light.'" So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, to the city of Ziklag. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel, as we read about last week, to fight Saul and thus ends the fifth lying story, meaning the fifth story in which David or some other hero of the faith in this book alone lies and God blesses it. And yet again, all that I've had time to say until today is, well... You know, listen, lying is permitted if and only if. By lying, you're subverting the murderous intentions of someone. We see it with Rahab, God blesses her. We see it with the Egyptian midwives or the Hebrew midwives, and God blesses them. We see it here several times in this book, each of which, whether all of the adversaries are aware of it or not, are times of war. It's very interesting, but what I haven't had time to say and to develop in any way Is that under any other circumstance? Okay, here's what our king says. He says, thou shalt not lie. He's a king of truth, guys. And he calls us to speak and to live truthfully. My goodness, do you remember what Jesus said at the end of his life, just prior to his crucifixion? At his trial, sort of like David's kind of had a trial, if you will, but before the Gentile ruler of Pontius Pilate, who was seeking to keep Jesus alive, was he not? While the rulers of the Jews were seeking to send Jesus away in death. And they were angry with Pilate. And politically, Pilate was outmaneuvered. He was outgunned. He was forced to do what he did not want to do. Oh, incidentally, what did Pilate say about Jesus in that context? He said, I find no fault in this man. And here's the deal. (laughs) That was true. That was right on. But what did Jesus say in that context? He said, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. You ready? To bear witness to the truth. King Jesus is a king of truth. He is himself, as Will said in the introduction, the truth. And he calls his people, those who are filled with his spirit, those who are guided by his word, those who are living as living parts of his community, well, to speak and to live truthfully. Bottom line, we are to tell the truth, and we are to tell the truth about Jesus and his gospel. You're like, right on. Okay, but wait a minute, and we are to tell the truth about everything else as well. And here's the thing that I think that maybe would be helpful for us to connect. It is that those two things, Jesus and his gospel on the one hand, and everything else on the other, are not disconnected. They are absolutely and utterly connected. And let me tell you who they're connected for. They're connected for the people in my world and in your world, the people with whom we work, live, and play, our kids, maybe our parents, our siblings, our siblings. Other people in our family, people that we work with, people we go to school with, people in our neighborhood, they are connected in their hearts and in their minds. And so then we cannot, I think, credibly claim to be surprised when they refuse to believe that Jesus is life's greatest treasure as they hear that coming out of our mouths, if at the same time they're witnessing us lying, on the other hand, to gain or keep some other kind of treasure, particularly since, bottom line, they know at the very least that our King comes to us and says, What? Thou shalt not lie, just like we should not be surprised when they refuse to believe that our comfort in life is found in Christ, when they see us telling lies of convenience to gain or to keep or to increase our comfort or maybe just to avoid discomfort. And we cannot claim to be surprised when they refuse to believe that our value as people is found in our status as sons and daughters of the King through faith in Christ When they find us lying about things, puffing ourselves up, making ourselves look better so that we look more valuable to someone else. Truth matters. And it matters for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that it affects our credibility as those who are filled with the Spirit of Christ and are to go out and continue His message, which is witnessing to the truth. It matters. As many of you guys know, before I became the pastor here at the church, which is almost 13 years ago, by the way, um, I spent 10 years as an attorney, and I did a lot of personal injury work. That's what I did. I know that maybe I shouldn't reveal that to you, or maybe you now know that I'm an expert online. So um, I know a little about it. And I handled a lot of you know car accident cases, all that kind of stuff. and, and sometimes I represented the person who was claiming to be injured in the case. But more often than not, I represented the person who was being sued by the person who was claiming to be injured in the case. And oftentimes the way that I would receive these cases is from the insurance company that I had a relationship with. And so they would send me the file on the case. It's their insured who's being sued. You kind of get the idea. And they hire me to represent their insured who is the defendant in the lawsuit. And so my introduction to every case would be the company insurance file. And so I'd get the file and I'd look over things and I'd look over the accident report and see what happened and I'd look at the damage estimates and I'd look at the photographs of the cars and see what kind of damage there was and I'd flip through the medical records cuz typically they were contained within that file and Sometimes, sometimes there would be a surveillance videotape included in that file, little, you know, clue to you, if you get in an accident and you make a claim and you begin to deal with somebody's insurance company, it is not unusual for them to hire a private investigator to follow you around, and here is why. They want to know if all these limitations you're claiming to have as a result of this accident, uh, you happen to have also when you don't think anyone's watching. Get the idea? So I got this file, one of the cases. And I start looking through it. I look at the accident report and I think, oh, wow. Well, we bought this one. My client was a very elderly man and he failed to recognize not only that the plaintiff had stopped in front of him, but that about 50 other cars had stopped in front of her. So let's say 51 cars all succeeded to stop and he plowed into the back of this woman. I don't even think he braked. There were no skid marks, nothing. And I look at the picture of her car, and the rear of her car is destroyed. So I'm thinking, well, this isn't going too well. You know, she's claiming a neck injury, okay, well, you know, big surprise, she got shellacked in this accident. And then I see, oh, wait, there's a tape. So I play the tape, and lo and behold, the investigator for the insurance company happened to follow the plaintiff on a day when she went to the gym. And I guess this guy in street clothes paid the guest fee because he obviously went into the gym and somehow, I mean, this guy's magical, filmed her entire workout, the whole thing. Now, she's claiming neck injury. So she's got her, and he's got her on film. She's standing on a treadmill, and she's got a friend over here and a friend over here, and she's doing like this, talking. You turn her head all the way to the right, and then she'd turn her head all the way to the left, and my favorite part or maybe my second favorite part, was when somebody came walking up, literally behind her treadmill, and be, without turning her shoulders, she goes like this. And for five minutes talks. she's like an owl. It was unbelievable. <laughs> right? So later on in the video, she's working out, and she's doing some odd exercise, and I see her take her head, like in a bent over position like this, and roll it all the way up. I mean, the range of motion would make a six-year-old jealous, is my point. But here's the problem. I can't get too excited about that yet because, I mean, if you have neck and back problems, many of you do, you know that, you know what, some days you wake up and you feel great. And then there are days when you can't do a thing. So if she comes in and she says, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a stiff neck a lot, but it's not every day. Some days I feel okay. How much value does that tape have? It has some, but it's greatly diminished. So I set her deposition. She comes into my office, comes with her husband and her 10-year-old son, and they are a beautiful family. Very attractive, very intelligent, very articulate, really, really sweet, really, really nice people. And, uh, and But she's got the stiff neck thing going. So the neck is immobile in my office. And so I am trying to put her at ease, you know, because, I mean, it's, a, it's scary to give a deposition. You know, you got a court reporter and you're sworn in, and it's like, oh, man, you know, please, I just want to get this thing over with. So I'm always trying to say, I'm not Mr. Meanie, you know, I'm a nice guy, and get her to relax. And so about halfway through the deposition, we've developed a rapport, and I drop into the middle of the deposition, what is for me the entire case? And I say to her, I say, you know what, I said, if you don't mind me saying, I, I've noticed that since you guys arrived today, um, your neck appears at least to be very stiff. Is it, is it stiff? And she said, yes, it is. And I said, I'm going to try to describe this so that the court reporter can take it down, and here's what I want you to do. If I mess this up in any way, I want you to correct me. Will you agree to do that? And she said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And I said, well, great. And so what I've noticed is throughout the course of our time here, when you turn to the left to talk to your husband, you don't turn your head to the left at all. Is that because you can't? And she said, that's right. I can't turn my head to the left. I said, in fact, let me just describe it. You pivot at the waist you turn, your whole shoulders and everything turns. And she said, that's right. And I said, in the same thing, when you look to your attorney to your right, you pivot at the waist because your head can't turn to the right. She said, that's right. I said, I suppose if I asked you to look at the ceiling, you know, to roll your head back, you'd have to lean back at the waist because you can't lay your head back. She said, that's correct. And I said, in the same thing, for looking at the ground, you can't take your chin to your chest. You, you need to literally bend over at the waist to look at your shoes, for example. She said, that's right. And I said, wow. And it's like that every day? <laughs> Drum roll. Is she going to say, no, it's not like that every day. It's just like that. Some days and I'm stressed out and you've got me stressed out. I had to come here today. And so it's all tight. Or is she going to go for the home run? She said, yes, it's like that every day. And I thought to myself, you know, let's wrap this thing up. So I asked a bunch more questions, and on we went, and we offered her, I don't know, like $2,000. It was go-away money. And, uh, and she didn't take it. She was insulted. It was a big impact. So we went to trial. And, you know, they show up, beautiful family, nice, articulate. I show up, and my client is not even physically able to attend. So it's it's the plaintiff's lawyer and this really nice lady and her nice family and then it's me myself and I, you know. But she does show up doing the stiff neck thing because I've got the sworn testimony and believe you me, it did not leave my hand the entire time that I was there. So I have to explain to the jury what the deal is. I have to tell them, "Hey, listen, <laughs> I hope you've won't hold against me the fact that my client is not here. I, you know, Mr. So-and-so is his client, and I, it's just, it's me in the papers, man. And let me explain why. Because my client caused this accident. I'm hoping that you won't hold it against me. He's kind of elderly. He wasn't able to come. But here's the truth, and the truth is what this trial is all about. My client ran in to the back of Mrs. So-and-so, and her lawyer is going to show you pictures of the car, and it's pretty much wrecked. Those pictures are for real. That's what my client did to her car, and she was in it. So the fact that he's not here, I I hope you would agree, really doesn't matter. What this trial is about is the truth, and it's the truth about whether or not that accident injured her A, if so, to what degree, and if to some degree, well, then what's fair, just, and reasonable compensation? That's it. And all I want you guys to do throughout the course of this trial is to listen, but not just to listen. I want you to look with your eyes also for the truth. So we start the trial. Plaintiff's lawyer puts the plaintiff on the stand. She's wonderful. She's great, but she's really stiff. Really stiff. My cross-examination is like two minutes. That's it. I got one bullet, guys. That's all I have going for me. And I want to be sure everybody knows how I'm aiming it. So I get up and I say, Mrs. So-and-so, it's great to see you again. I haven't seen you since I took your deposition in my office. Uh, And I couldn't help but notice that just like when you came to my office, Well, today also, your neck looks incredibly stiff. Is that correct? She said, yes. I said, in fact, you can't move it. She said, that's right. I said, when you turn to the left, the whole body. And she says, right. I said, you turn to the right, everything turns. Correct. If I ask you to look up, I'm not going to do it. But if I did, would you have to lean back? She's like, yes. And I said, forward, look, bending at the waist. She's like, right on. And I said, and just like you told me in my office, I said, wow, it's like that every day, isn't it? She said, yes, it is. I said, I have no other questions. They put her husband on the stand. Same deal. I ask the same question like that every day. Yep. Thank you. No further questions. They put their 10-year-old son on the stand. Cute kid. Just a precious little guy, you know. And uh, so the plaintiff's lawyer finishes up with him, and the judge looks at me and says, Mr. Hendricks, do you have any questions for this young man? And I said, Your Honor, I'm a dad. I said, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only parent in this room. And I can't imagine any parent on the face of the planet who would want to subject their child to the cross-examination of some lawyer. So no, sir, I have no questions for this nice young man. And like all the moms on the jury, you know, like handed me a rose, you know, I mean, they were like, you are awesome. You're the nicest guy ever, which is all I wanted. Their doctor takes the witness stand. I get to cross-examine him. I said, "Doctor, I just have a couple of questions. They're very simple. I will not keep you long." Question number one: It seems to me, from looking at your medical records, and I, you can show you the page if you'd like, but it seems to me that before the plaintiff came to see you, she came to see her attorney, and I, I've surmised that because her attorney sent her to you. Am I correct about that? He said, "Yes." it interesting. I said, well, you just reviewed all of your records with Mr. So-and-so here a second ago. So I don't want to go through all of the detail in that. I just want to commend you because I noticed that every time she came, you were very meticulous in recording her range of motion at every one of her visits, of course, after her lawyer saw her and then sent her to you. And he said, yes, I did that. I said, it seems to me, and again, you're the doctor, so correct me if I'm wrong, that basically every time she has shown up, she can't move her head. Like range of motion, pretty much zero. He's like, that's right. I don't have any other questions. Now I get to put on evidence. I call my doctor, because I had her see one, go through the report, but here was the heart of it. I said, Dr. So-and-so, when she came to see you at my request for purposes of litigation, did you check her range of motion? I did. What was it? Basically nothing. Interesting. Did you look at all the films and the MRIs, all the stuff that her doctor saw, you saw? Yes. Anything objective, anything structural, anything on any of those films that says to you, oh, here's the reason why she can't move her neck? No. Did you palpate her neck? Did you feel the muscles in her neck and in her shoulders and her back? Yes, I did. Any spasm? No. Would you expect to see spasm in somebody who can't move their neck? Actually, yes, I would. So what do you think's happening here? Objection, speculation. You know what? I withdraw the question, but I don't think we're speculating at this point. I show the video, and she's doing this, and this, and this, and this, and, okay? And I say, I don't have any other evidence, Your Honor. I got one bullet in the gun, man, and that was it. So we get to the closing arguments, and her lawyer gets up, and he argues, and he shows the pictures, and the accident, and the whole deal. Asked for a large sum of money, which I thought was a favor to me. Honestly, I felt like it was insulting given the tape. And so I got up and I said, well, I said, you know, we began by talking about the truth. I said, look for it and listen for it. And I hope that you've been doing that. Truth is my guy caused this accident and the pictures you saw, we own it. We did it. Done. Guilty. But I think the truth as well, and I hope you've noticed, is that when Mrs. So-and-so goes to see her attorney or she goes to see me and I'm an attorney... Or she goes to see the doctor that her lawyer sent her to. Or she goes to see the doctor that I sent her to. Again, what is this all about? I mean, we're in a lawsuit here. When she shows up at a deposition, when she comes to the courtroom, she can't move her neck. But when she doesn't know she's being watched... When she goes to the gym where there's no lawyer, there's no court reporter, there's no judge, there's no jury, there's no doctor, there's no litigation, there's no financial incentive, I, I think the truth is also that she can move her head, and I'm just going to show you, kind of like this and like this. And then I said, my personal favorite was this, the guy behind the, <laughs> the, guy behind the you know, Stairmaster thingy she was on. Oh, and I liked this one. I said, I think the truth is that when nobody's watching, that's what she can do. And I kid you not, her 10 year old son, who's sitting next to his father in the gallery in the courtroom, right behind the plaintiff and her lawyer, goes, oh, Mom's lying. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Was unbelievable. And here's what I thought. I thought, my goodness, she just lost a lot more than money. She did lose money, incidentally. The jury was out for five minutes, maybe. Maybe. And as they're coming out of the room where they've been deliberating, I'm standing up in the courtroom and everybody stands. Here comes the jury. They're filing in. One of the ladies looks at me and smiles and winks. It's the truth. I'm not kidding. Game over. But she lost a lot more than money. She lost, and I hope she was able to repair this, frankly. I really, really do. She lost credibility with her boy. And I thought, you know, what a precious thing to trade for something so cheap and fleeting. But I think we need to apply that to our own lives too. We live before a watching world, folks. We got people watching in our own family called our kids. Maybe our parents, brothers, sisters, friends, co-workers. You know the list. The people with whom you work, live, and play. And here's what they know. They know you belong to a king of truth. He claims to be the truth, and he tells me and you to speak the truth. To live lives of truth. Truth. And truth matters for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that it matters to our own credibility as followers of Jesus. And so you're like, okay, you made the point. Now, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? I mean, all right, Tom, thanks. Appreciate that. I feel pretty crummy about myself. Now what? What's the answer? Is it go out there and try harder? I just need to grip my teeth and try harder. Is that it? No? Okay, I just need to go out and try to be more truthful. Don't lie, don't lie, don't lie, don't lie is that it? No, it's not. The answer is not learning to lie less. So I will say there may be some apologies that need to be issued. You know, where you go to somebody that you've misled and they know it and you know it. Maybe a few other people know it. and You apologize to them and to the other few other people who know it. We are very imperfect on this issue, are we not? And not just this woman, all of us, we're all this woman, all of us. Please don't judge her too quickly, lest in the same time you judge yourself and me as well. But the answer is not learning to lie less. Just going to grip my teeth and try harder. The answer is learning to love Jesus more. The Bible comes to us and says, you know what? Within you is a heart. Let me tell you something about what comes out of your heart. Every mouth, every word that you say out of your mouth comes out of your heart. Every action, every attitude, everything that you do, all of the issues of life spring forth from the well of your heart. And let me tell you something else. You cannot change your own heart or the heart of anyone else. That is the kind of resurrection miracle, if you will, that only Jesus can do. So what is the answer? It's give to him your heart. It's come to the foot of the cross of the truly innocent one, the one who was sent from heaven and who is above the angels, who is the far greater than David and who came into this world for you to lay down his infinitely valuable and infinitely perfect life for liars like me and liars like you. And with his blood, he washes it all away. It's to find your innocence, not in yourself, but in the truly innocent one who laid down his innocent life for you. And then it is to pursue him with your whole heart. It is to take up the means that God himself has ordained by which we give this heart of ours to the Lord, and he then, by the power of his spirit and through his word and in community with people, begin bit by bit by bit to renovate it and to make it more and more and more like the heart of Jesus. And what is that? It's personal worship. It's gathering. It's plugging in. It's serving. It's all of the things that we talk about all of the time around here. Why? Why? because they're priceless. They're important. And so then I guess the bottom line is come to the cross of Jesus and give to him all of your lies and all of your sin and give to him your heart and then commit to the process of growing in a relationship with him. Okay? All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the truly honest one who is the Lord Christ Lord, we thank you for the truly selfless one who is the Lord Christ. We thank you for the truly loving one who is the Lord Christ, the truly righteous one, the truly holy one. Lord, we thank you for the one in whom we find all our hope and in whom alone there is hope. God, give us faith to come to him in humility, to recognize our sin and our fallenness, all of our deceptions, and truly and authentically to lay them down at his feet, to embrace him in faith, and to be set free, to be forgiven, Lord, for all of our blunders, for all the times when we've made a split-second decision and made the wrong one, for silly things. Oh, God, deliver us, we pray, from our sin and our wickedness through Christ. And then, Lord, meet with us in your word and personal worship. Speak to us when we gather in corporate worship through your word and through the songs that are sang and the prayers that are prayed. Lord, bind us together with one another that we might learn to do life in community with other like-minded people who are on the same mission of know and serve and live for you. And awaken us to the reality that our time and our talents and our resources are all of it on loan from you and are not just for us, but they're yours and they're for your mission and kingdom. God, show us how to use them to tell the truth about you and your gospel to the world and to learn to live humbly, repentantly, and truthfully before the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.